Should I confess that I almost forgot to read Infinite Jest this week? Oh, no. Wouldn't that have been embarrassing? That, that would have been. That would have been so embarrassing. I keep cutting it really close because I teach earlier in the week, and then I edit the podcast on Thursday afternoons. So, what, right? uh, so Friday, so then- Friday or Saturday morning is my day for doing the reading for today. Oh, wow. I don't know what finally made me realize that I was missing something, but (laughs) today, though, I baked a birthday pie, birthday rhubarb pie. Sorry. Oh, how did it go? Oh, boy. It was a happy pie making because I had already, due to a pie making fiasco, the weekend before I had pie crust put away in the freezer, so I didn't actually have Mm. to make the crust. So it's really good. Your pop's birthday. Yeah, we need to find out more about the pie-making fiasco. The fiasco? Well, I made the dough and I went to roll it out and I thought, boy, it's so soft and pliable. I wonder, and not sticky. I wonder, what's what's up? I mean, it's (laughs) behaving so nicely. This can't be right. And then I remembered, (laughs) I still make my pie crust with shortening. Mm Mm-hmm. And I use these sticks of shortening. And you know, a stick of butter is a half cup. Yeah. Well, a stick of shortening is a cup. Oh. Oh, my. So I had twice as much shortening in as I should have, which meant that I had to add twice as much flour as I needed. So I was just, I was... I was overwhelmed with pie dough. I had enough to make three, three, two crust pies. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So my last week's suffering led to an easier time this week, which isn't that the way it goes sometimes. And, uh, yeah, it's thematically relevant. It is. And welcome to good-looking people in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. For the fifth week in a row, we're popping infinite jest into the old TP and spooling up the cartridge. We're up to page 127 today. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with my fellow rereader, Brianna. Hello. And we're joined over Discord by my mom, Norma. Hi, everyone. And by our friend, Vinny. Hello there. Hello. Um... So, okay, uh, <laughs> um, I don't, hmm, I, I feel like I've said this before in prior weeks, but I'm not sure how much I have to say about this section. Hmm. And I, I think, Brianna, you mentioned that maybe you feel kind of similarly. Is that true? Yes, I do have one thing that I need to say, but I'm going to see if it comes up in casual conversation. Yeah, I mean, so I I made some notes. It felt like a kind of perfunctory reading experience for me this week. Like, I'm not sure how much I got out of it. So I feel like I didn't have a lot to say last week, 
uh, during last week's reading. And so for this week, I tried to, you know, take more notes and tried to have a few more things. So I've, I've got a few things to bring up and a few, like, um, discussions and stuff Excellent. like that. Excellent. So, yeah. so I can ride your coattails. Very oh, good. Yes. I can't remember where I where exactly I was reading because I wouldn't have taken notes about this stuff because I don't understand it. But I thought there was more technical technical stuff that that you guys would be would be uh, talking about. <laughs> there is some. I, I found some. I to be perfectly honest, I'm a little tired of it at this point. <laughs> the technology stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the. Um, that's in in one of the big buddy meetings, I think, where there's yeah. a, just some further like, oh, it's yeah, right at the beginning here, uh, talking about the TPs in the the rooms where they're meeting. Oh yeah, yeah. Interlace Tatsuoka Yushitu Cybervision, the three hundred track wire. Like it just That's feels it. like sort of fetishization at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, which I guess is me it, the point. I yeah. To me, it's like. It's clear that in in the world of this book, that mm-hmm. entertainment lives in some space that's elevated beyond even what it is right now in the world that I live in. And I mm-hmm. know that entertainment is a big business, and it's a you know there's a lot of talk about screen time with kids and yeah. and adults too, and how how you can't get kids to pay attention to stuff like that they actually have to think about and talk about because that's not how they generally spend their time given their, you know, Mm -hmm. given their own choice. And so it is a big thing in our society, but it feels like in this book that it's even, it's more. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a lot more. Like it's a major building block of society sort of like it's everything depends on it i guess yeah yeah would you say that in that case that entertainment or technology itself is a character almost yeah i would definitely say that the entertainment is a character Mm -hmm. um but Mm. in terms of like the general concept of entertainment I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think it's definitely a big part of the world um, of the book and a big um, part of kind of understanding the book and what it wants to talk about and say. But I'm not sure if I would call it a character. I get the sense on this read that as as much as this is a narrative like novel telling the story of some characters, it's also very much a book about systems, um, hmm. uh-huh. and the the ways those systems uh, manifest in the daily lives of those of our characters is like one of the central points of the narrative. Hey, Vinny, um, are you are you using uh, earbuds with a mic built in again? No, no, I'm not. Oh. I, it might have just been how you were sitting. I was just hearing some breathing in the mic. Oh, okay, yeah. Also, I had to let the dog out, so I was walking <laughs> ah. around and stuff. Ah, that would do it. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about your dog. Um. So her name is Dandy, short for Dandelion. Um, <laughs> she is a very strange dog. 
Um, she's like <laughs> too, either her head is too big for her body or her legs are too short, but she just has <laughs> very strange proportions. <laughs> and half of her is kind of smooth haired. The other half of her is like really frizzy, curly haired. <laughs> and she likes to shove her face into people. She sounds she, She's very good. Yeah, she's a great dog. Re-systems, though. I don't know that it's necessarily just about how systems affect people, but people's role within systems as well, because we're seeing a lot of affiliations with various organizations yeah. and what that means to the individual. Yeah, there, yeah, that's true. There's There's all this talk about, like, organizations as opposed to big social systems and like splinter cells of organizations mm -hmm. and organizations that have differing philosophies. Um, yeah. Um, I feel like there is a little bit of like large scale political system as well. Um, yeah. And we, we do with... get into that a little bit in this section. Yeah. So, so we start out with this kind of pastiche of different big buddy meeting times with in different groups. I have to say that last time I said I said really negative things about the the buddy system and that mm -hmm. I thought it was not necessarily a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but I kind of changed my mind when I read this. I thought <laughs> Oh um, yeah. I thought yeah, they they do some of them do really stupid stuff during their buddy sessions, but they do seem to have like a they feel a connection to their buddy group, and some yeah. of them actually bring up things that, I mean, you might even, you might think that they're stupid things that they bring up, but it's believable that it's, that there are things that kids would think about and wonder about, and uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. actually, actually it does provide some support that wouldn't be there if they didn't have their buddies and it kind of it also uh whether they do a good job of it or not a really good job of it it does it does keep the the older students from ignoring the younger ones this is you true mm -hmm. i mean whether they're good big brothers or big buddies or not uh they're at least they at least interact with their little buddies and they're not really they're not mean to their buddies <laughs> <laughs> they may this be ineffective, true. but they're not mean. They have yeah. these, they hang out, they, you know. Yeah. Andrew, you hit on exactly what I wanted to say oh, with no. the word pastiche. <laughs> uh, for, all, for all this book is apparently unfilmable, mm -hmm. this section to me feels very much like cinema. And cutting mm -hmm. between mm -hmm. different big buddy meetings. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I was very taken with that. And then you called it a pastiche. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say that that's accurate. And I found it very interesting. Yeah, you, even down to the way. So it like, it, to continue talking about it in the language of cinema, it like starts with Hal's meeting and then cuts to... John Wayne's, I think, and then it cuts to a yeah. couple others. And then at the end of the chapter, there's these like quick cuts back, back right. like tracking right. back, which feels again mm -hmm. like a very montagey sort of right. uh, gesture. Yeah, yeah. And right. narratively, when I was going through it, I'm like, and I don't 
know exactly which meeting is which because in the quick cut section, they're not really labeling who is talking anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And it just all blends together into the big buddy system. Yeah. This is something that I I would love to talk with you more about, Vinny, as mm -hmm. a, another filmmaker. Um, and just something that we can kind of keep our eye on as we continue to read, because this is like a famously unfilmable book. Um, there have right. been there have been attempts to make this to adapt this book into a movie. Um, some I forget is it I, th I think it's the creator of Parks and Rec currently owns the movie rights to the book. Oh um, wow! Uh, oh now that is special. And there have been these like overtures at trying to make this into some kind of a movie, but it always collapses. Um, yeah. Uh, right now, I mean, a movie I'm not so sure about, but I can see this being a series. Yeah, I mean, like um, a, a Netflix series or something is the answer. Oh, my right. goodness. Yeah. 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 One that goes on and on and on. Right. Right. But how yeah. would you handle the end notes? Or would you? I think I, you would. Hmm. I feel like you could, and that's kind of why I feel like a series would do better because mm -hmm. like, if you are having like a point where you have a huge end note, you can take, especially if we're talking about a Netflix series where you don't necessarily have to conform to certain times or anything, you can have like an entire end notes section, like an entire episode. That's just an end note. I would format the end notes as ephemera that we cut away to from time to time, like primary source documents. So like instead of having the narrator describe the AFR, I'd like cut away to some mid nineties PBS documentary that shows what they were like and tells the story of the train jumpers. You know, yeah. That's actually, mm -hmm. that's really interesting because the second you said the narrator doing something, I started thinking about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how they handled the different entries in the guide in either the movie or the radio show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I could see that. So I think what I'm saying is that uh, all these people who say that Infinite Jest is unfilmable are cowards. <laughs> and, and they yeah. should just let us do it. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I being only 127 be... pages into this over a thousand yeah. page book, I would wholeheartedly agree. I'm sure it's doable. Yeah, Definitely. I, I even think it would be possible to make a uh, a standard feature length movie out of this. It would definitely, I mean, you would lose a lot, but that's the nature of any film adaptation is that you lose a lot of text. Um, yeah. So I don't know, but it, it is something that I, I want to keep an eye on. And just like, I think that's a fun question for us to play with is if we were making this into a movie, what would we keep? What would we lose? How would we do it? Um, just the idea of the entertainment feels yeah. also like a very cinematic thing. It feels like, a, you, you know, there's there's often in screenwriting circles, there's often talk of the MacGuffin as this like that's a thing in Hitchcock and in, in uh, Coen Brothers movies where there's like this object that everyone is after. Um, and and the entertainment is interesting because it has a little more agency than most MacGuffins. Usually the MacGuffin is like a suitcase full of money or the Maltese Falcon or mm -hmm. something like that. Uh -huh. But um, does it have 
agency. It doesn't really control where it goes. True, but it does it, hip, hypnotize and maybe kill people. Yeah, yeah it doesn't have, <laughs> like it doesn't control where it goes, but it does control the plot. Mm, and so when yeah. talking about kind of agency, specifically narrative agency, um, mm. how something or someone interacts with the plot is what matters, not so much where they go or stuff okay. like that. Because I was about to say that would be like the Maltese Falcon secretly just being a scimitar and people falling on top of it. If the Maltese Falcon yeah. was a real falcon with a gun and it shot you when you picked it up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I suspect that David Foster Wallace is engaging in some of these tropes and the cinematic storytelling really intentionally. Um, I'm not quite sure to what end, except that you know, it's a book about filmed entertainment and Well, and you have you have Hal's father who, you know, the the whole right. film making Right. Right, yeah. And you know, Hal's father for whom the book's title comes from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um so Yeah, yeah, and I would definitely agree with that. That, you know, I think this um kind of cinematic intercutting and everything is very intentional because you know, as we were talking about, so much of this book is about entertainment and media and how we interact with things or how we interact with entertainment and media and how in entertainment and media interacts with us. Um, mm -hmm. So incorporating this language and this these media ideas into the book is yeah, only natural and I would say very intentional. You know, the big question that trying to decide whether anything is worth the energy that it takes you to become mm. good at something. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there's a lot of a lot of discussion. You know, the the little buddies are asking why why would I wanna stay? It's terrible. We're all laying around, we're so tired and not that many of us are gonna make it to the show as they which is yes. also interesting that they refer to the the pro tennis world as the show. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and just talking about, you know, the effort that it takes to reach like the pinnacle of they're talking about tennis play, but really it relates to anything mm -hmm. yeah, that, the effort that we and... decide to put our energy into. And that whole what do you do when you reach plateaus right. in in tennis or in life or in anything? Do you, you know, do you become discouraged because you're at a plateau or do you? just become more determined to fight through it and become really obsessive? Or do you just become complacent and satisfied with being where you are and not caring if you go farther? Yeah. So I thought, you know, all of that is, it's life. It's like, how do you decide? How do you mm -hmm. decide what you want to do today? <laughs> <laughs> what mm -hmm. you want to do with your life? What you want to, I mean, it can be really big big issues yeah and so hal's got this theory i mean in hal's section he's talking more about the experience of being at enfield more than about uh -huh. tennis right. generally right um and he he presents this theory that the reason that it's a functional institution is that um the coaches and the teachers and administrators all set the situation up to make themselves the villains like they, right. they want they kind of want the students right. to hate hate them and right. to uh, commiserate with each other and to develop a, a bond of community in that way right right that they have a, a shared 
they have to have something that they can hate together and it really ties really ties yeah. them together which also has you know that's that's kind of true in real life too if you i taught for a lot of years and i loved teaching but i have to say that i you know sometimes you have administrators that are really helpful and supportive and other times you have you feel like the system that you're working within is is kind of making your job harder mm-hmm. mm. and and so then you feel the same you feel the same as these kids with the tennis coaches you know you get irritated with the the system and the hoops that you have to jump through and so then you're commiserating with your with your uh colleagues and and you kind of you you find you find ways to support each other that you might not have been forced to do if if you had gotten all that support from the top down that you have to build your own sort of support systems mm-hmm. so it's similar it's that whole yeah. you know yeah it's um, the gripe sessions sometimes are really good as long as you don't get just stuck there <laughs> I suppose that's better than coming to hate teaching or coming to right. hate tennis. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because that's the other thing that everybody has in common. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. And what I'm interested in with this um, section is that, you know, a lot of Hal's part is about misery. And about, yeah. you know, the point of misery and why we're miserable. And mm-hmm. I'm especially interested in this as a juxtaposition from the chapter that just came before it, which was the, um, all the talk of love and yeah. right, right. how important love is and everything. Right. Yeah, that whole sharing of the, like the, the common enemy is like the flip side of, of the the love of country or love of cause, which is sharing a love of something is, is powerful as is sharing the hatred or dislike of something. Right. Oh God. Kind of equally powerful in a, in a, in the opposite way. Or yeah. And if motivating. I'm not mistaken, it seems like what's being presented is that the point of misery and what misery does is it kind of builds a community much more than love in a way. Right. Yeah. I could see that because there was also all that talk about um, being in love with someone is actually being in love with yourself or uh-huh. mm-hmm. with the the process of being in love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's isolating. It, yeah, like the 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 communal experience of misery is somehow more unifying i don't know i i mean Although, there's something there's something kind of empowering about that mm-hmm. like it, it reminds me of a lot of uh like community organizing is built out of this idea that that people right. are suffering to that pe- neighbors and families and friends are suffering together and uh, and because they have that shared experience of suffering, they can unite to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And perhaps it goes along with all these organizations that we keep, that I can't keep straight. They um, introduce mm-hmm. another one the, all the, in this all chapter. All the different organizations. Yeah. Oh, do they? They often, yeah. they often, they have sort of a shared 
shared misery and a shared hate. You know, they're yeah. they're anti something. Right. Right. Which, yeah. And not to not to dwell on Orwell, but there's that's a whole thing in 1984. The like six minutes hate where the they they flash images of the opposition leaders on the screen for everyone to jeer at and and fling insults at for six minutes a day. And hey, that, that's like, just like our current political situation. Yeah. 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 It's it's mm-hmm. almost as if 1984 was a, a satire about real political systems. <laughs> Huh. Huh. Is that is that sarcasm? I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it is sarcasm. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how big of a sarcasm hole we can dig. <laughs> oh boy. Um, so there's a, this is just a small thing, but there's a there's a moment of eerie prescience in in Hal's Big Brother's meeting. Uh, they mention he mentions that <laughs> Big Brother. Uh, Sorry, uh, a, a Big Buddies <laughs> big buddy. meeting. Um, you were yeah, just talking yeah. about 1984. Yeah, anyway, yeah, go on. Um, he mentions that uh, uh, Ingersoll's parents founded the Rhode Island yes. version of the service yes. for you order groceries by TP <gasps> and teenagers yes. and fleets of station wagons bring them yes. out to you instead of supermarkets. Oh like, yeah, th- that, that that's down a, too. that's exactly what everyone is trying to do right now and this this prefigures like instacart and postmates by right. like right. i don't know 15 years something right. like that yeah, yeah. 20 at years least, yeah at least more yeah. maybe yeah that, probably more that's fairly new the idea of <laughs> yeah. being able to get anything from the internet was barely a glimmer in the eye when he was writing this right oh yeah right what no, was, that was stuff that really first? hit home I think Amazon was founded in like 98 or 99. Was mm-hmm. eBay first though? eBay came first by like a year or two, but it was a very niche. It was like. Right. Collector's items. Collector's items and haunted dolls and nothing yeah. else for the, for the right. first three years of its existence. Yeah. And bef- uh, before Amazon. 95. Borders, right. Mm. Borders was. Right. Did, did Borders. Borders have an online business? Oh, Borders yes. had a huge online yeah. business. Oh. Yeah. I mean, they were a brick-and-mortar store, but yeah, their online business was huge. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, like, they were Amazon before Amazon was Amazon. And Mm -hmm. so Amazon was kind of like the the competition to Borders, but yeah, I mean, I remember thinking that Borders was kind of like the big online bookseller. Um, The tennis player. On that, they're looking up. Oh, the, just, yeah, the the like visualization cartridge yeah. or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So the that is Stan Smith. Stan Smith, yeah. Yep. And uh, Stanley Roger Smith is a former world number one American tennis player and two-time Grand Slam singles champion, who also, mm-hmm. along with his partner Bob Lutz, formed one of the most successful doubles teams of all time. Together, they won many major titles all over the world. This from Wikipedia. Oh. Uh, and they, he entered the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 1987. Hmm. So, yeah, that is who is playing tennis and who they're just watching hit forehands and backhands and oh, volleys. With, like, oh, like well, robotically, robotically repeating his right. actions over right. and over yeah. again. Yeah, that is, yeah. Right. 
Oh, but we can't skip over the fact that somebody's teaching his little buddies how to floss. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Ted, Ted shocked. Mm-hmm. And, and none of them are paying attention. And he seems like obsessively fascinated with the process of flossing. Why do yes. I have a demonstrator that? mouth? I, I, presumably because this is a thing he does a lot. But yeah. why? <laughs> because he wants to Actually, make sure I was taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> Do I floss correctly? Mm. Not according to Shaft. <laughs> Shaft. Yeah. Uh, ha- there's a couple things that Hal says that I feel like make some thematic contributions to the book so far. He says, we know exactly where we stand in relation to one another. Mm. Um, mm. That's an interesting idea that like, I know exactly who I'm above and who I'm below. And I know how right. those rankings have changed over time. And I know right. that they'll change again. And he also says, how can we be friends? Even if we all live and eat and shower and play together, how can we keep from being 136 deeply alone people all jammed together? Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. Which I think is one of the most pressing questions of contemporary existence. Right. J- just because we're all packed into a, a densely populated space together, how can we not be alone and lonely all the time? Yeah. Right. Which I think is also a really poignant question to ask in light of our current circumstances. Yeah. Where we're right. literally alone. Yeah. And right. trying mm-hmm. to find ways of meaningfully connecting with the people who are important to us. I got to say, um, smiling and waving at our mail carrier from across the street on the occasions when when that's happened have, uh-huh. have really brightened my day. We have a delightful Aww. mail carrier. <laughs> he mentions uh, kids, the little buddies that are like the little buddy that's falling asleep with his eyes open. And Hal mm-hmm. mentions that, that Oren was really good at that and he used to sleep with his eyes open at the dinner table. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which made me think more. I'm I'm so I'm so intrigued by this fa- the family, the incandenza yeah. family, and mm-hmm. trying to imagine family dinner time, so I can add the thought of Oren sleeping with his eyes open while <laughs> James O is going on about something and who and not being able to and James O can't understand Hal and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We get a little moment here where we see kind of. A, a little bit more about how Hal views himself. Uh, he's talking about Ingersoll. Hal finds Ingersoll, this smart, soft, caustic kid with a big, soft, eyebrowless face and unwrinkled thumb joints with the runty, cuddled look of a mama's boy from way back, a quick intelligence he squanders on an insatiable need to advance some impression of himself. The kid so repels Hal because Hal sees in the kid certain parts of himself that he can't or won't accept. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think maybe points to the root of some of Hal's unhappiness. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, in John Wayne's section, they, they talk about the three worst Pokemon types. Despairing type, obsessive type, yes. and complacent yes. type. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> but which one would win in a battle? Oh. Truly. Uh, Probably obsessive well, I mean, type. I, uh, well, I mean, it depends. It depends on the yeah, evolution. I mean, 
uh, that that's the thing, you know. I mean, it, it's the same as the three. There are basically the three starter types, you know. You've got fire, <laughs> water, and grass, and so it's like a rock, paper, scissors thing. One mm-hmm. is yeah. strong against one. One is weak against one, and so mm. you know. Oh yeah. Okay, so obsessive beats complacent, but loses to despairing. Mm-hmm. Right. Despairing. Beats complacent. Oh wait, no, never mind. Obsessive beats complacent. So despairing so, beats obsessive but loses to complacent. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I would probably go with <laughs> one thing. Oh, um, Kurt Wang. I did not I, know what Kurt Wang was. Is it pronounced Kurt Wang? I, in my head, I always Kurt said Twang. Kurt Wang. <laughs> oh. Twang. You know, it might be Kurt Wang. Um... That's in Pemulus's group, I think, I that one think of the kids so, is yeah. asking about, what do you do when somebody's kertwanging you? No, Pemulus yeah. is the one that's betting. It's, uh... Oh, um... It's with Struck. Struck, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, either Kurtwang or Kurtwang. A Kurtwang is a situation that sends you careening speedily off in a different direction from the one you were going, physically, mentally, or emotionally. I'm yeah. unclear what this means yeah. in a tennis context, except that based on the discussion, it sounds like it's sort of against the rules. And like if there were a line judge there, they would put a stop to it. Yeah. Right. You're being messed with by your opponent yeah. some, in some way. This also paints a really interesting picture of like tennis tournaments or competitive tennis where there are matches... It, like early round matches being played where the only two people around are the two players. Like there's nobody watching. They're just kind so of off on their like own. A, that's also yeah. like sports today, right? The next yeah. step in sports in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. But that's, I mean, th- that's a thing. I think that is a thing in, in the way that tennis tournaments work, particularly like junior tennis where audiences aren't that big anyway where there are like qualifying matches and early round matches that are just like, there's not even a, a, an umpire or a line judge there to keep score. It's all just, are they called umpires in tennis? Are they called umpires? Is, uh, are there, they, there is I believe, um, yeah, the chair umpire. There? Yeah. yeah. Chair. Fascinating. The chair umpire is the one who ejects female tennis players for not wearing feminine enough clothing. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or for the cursing or something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was at, at, Trolch's buddy meeting, and he's talking about fear comments about fear and doubt. I mm. thought that was a pretty good mm. description of self doubt. This is the crucial plateau where character starts to matter focus, self consciousness, the chattering head, the cackling voices, the choking issue, fear versus whatever isn't fear, self image, doubts, reluctances, little tight lipped, cold footed men inside your mind. Tackling hmm. about fear and doubt. I like that uh, little tight-lipped, cold-footed men inside your mind. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a pretty good description of those moments when you're really doubting yourself. and <laughs> They're <laughs> chattering at you and telling you that you don't know what you're talking about and you're going to fail. It's funny that you mentioned that because that was one of the sections that I put a star next to <laughs> in the margin. <laughs> It must be because I felt so much self-doubt in my life that it it spoke to me. Uh, did it seem strange to anybody else that Struck seemed to be among the better of the big buddies? 
And I mean, I guess um, yeah, that is interesting. Agree? Yeah, because uh-huh. he's the, he's the one who's like sort of guru like dispensing wisdom as it's as, like Q and A, and they're taking mm-hmm. yeah, no, they're asking yeah. really really concrete questions about yeah. things that would be. I don't really have a concept of who he is as a person yet, but the the thing that we know about him is that he plagiarized a paper about right. The he AFR. plagiarized a paper, and he was right. wondering if he should use his own last name as a word and right. things yeah. like that. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. So maybe <laughs> academics are not his strong suit, but the like motivational and athletic side of things, and he, he does was better one at. He yeah, had like a he was running relaxation video stuff on the teleputer mm-hmm. yeah asking them for questions instead of just mm-hmm. deciding talking at them, them. Talking mm-hmm. at, yeah who do we think is the best big buddy Ooh. Yeah, who is <sighs> i do think hal is a is a good big buddy yeah. i think that he strikes the right balance between like like he's he's self-aware enough to know that he's not viewed as an authority figure uh, and that's not his job as a big buddy but he's also generally supportive and like emotionally vulnerable in the conversation that he's having yeah and you get the feeling that he feels responsible for his little buddies Mm -hmm. perhaps Mm -hmm. more than the other big buddies do like some yeah. of them, some of them, like Temulus, for instance, are definitely just putting in time, right? And, yeah, yeah time trying to make a buck just, on the side, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Hal seems to really—he comes closer to doing the things that you would assume that whoever decided that the buddy system was a good one—that Hal does the things that you think that those people would have hoped would happen in these buddy sessions. Hmm. But I mean, I, I think that a, a lot of these older students do a pretty decent job, a better right. job than I, I would expect little, them to do. I was a like, little particularly surprised. Particularly struck. Yeah. 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 I was a little surprised. Mm-hmm. But and even John, John Wayne, John John Wayne, Wayne who, who you might think. say anything, well, though. Yeah, he's it's ju- all he's just letting, letting Lamont Chu restate his yeah. stuff. But his little buddies uh, do look up to him and really vie to be in his group yeah and, and they say and that, that he, he's the one that's most sought after is right that right he was the one yeah. that everybody or is that right yes yeah there's yeah. like a, a, a random drawing be, yeah because he's a really good player right yeah is that why yeah. they want to be in his group yeah because he's he's the top ranked player at ETA, I believe okay um it said something about him being the second in 18s even though he's 17 and that he's like nationally ranked the first very soon yeah Yeah. i was going to say that i liked hal because i have a crush on hal but (laughs) we can move on from Mm. there and trolch is the one that was talking about the self-doubt and the yeah Yeah. and the idea of of learning the repetitive stuff first so that you don't have to think about it. Isn't, wasn't that him or is that how mm-hmm. talked yeah. about that? I think so. They both yeah. kind of talk about that. The point, I think. Of repeti- the point of repetition is there is no point. Yeah. Wait until it soaks into the hardware, freeze mm-hmm. up your head. They all do better than I would have thought they would do. 
Yeah. Even Pemulus, who's not, who's, you know, trying to make money off of his little buddies. He's not, like I said before, he's not, he's not being mean or there. Yeah, he's being friendly with them. He is. Yeah. In his own weird Pemulus way. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pemulus is one of the students who Avril gets the howling fantods about, right? And she wishes Hal wouldn't associate with him. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I have in my notes, sometimes wears a yachting cap. Oh, right. Yes. Mm, yeah, That's that a, tracks. Man, that is a, ooh, that really makes him much more hateable in my mind. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I got that he was doing it ironically. Even so. But he's yeah. the you type can, of you person. Can only, yeah, you who, can only wear a yachting cap ironically so many times before it becomes sincere. Oh, yeah, <laughs> 100%. You spoke a little bit about Orthostice, right? Mm. And his group. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and quoting Stitt, the tennis as training ground for, like, being a citizen. and. Uh -huh. and it's about discipline and sacrifice and honor to something way bigger than your personal ass. And it says something like, <laughs> How to learn to be a good American during a time when America isn't good its own self. Yeah. That's yeah. the challenge for all of That's us, isn't it? That's a challenge for today. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's a challenge for the past 200 and some years. I guess <laughs> America yeah. became America. So, Mario Incandenza's first and only even remotely romantic experience thus far. A chapter that has made me... Um, more deeply uncomfortable than anything else we've met in this book yet, I think. I hmm. think even more than... Gately and the Toothbrushes? Than Gately and the Toothbrushes, which is, like, funny in an extremely gross kind of way. Yeah. Like, this is... Yeah. This feels like... Well, I don't know. I have some strong thoughts, but I'm, I'm curious what other people think. I thought it made Mario seem like a much more pathetic character. I mean, I've known that he has struggles, but this, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. This was, um, this was really sadly uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I guess because previously when we've met Mario in the, in the book so far, he's been like with Hal or with uh, Stitt or with people that seem to appreciate who he is and help him through stuff that's hard for him, like standing up or, mm -hmm. you know, if he falls down, you pick him up. And I just, and I think one of the things that's particularly tragic about this chapter is that we see again, Mario's kind of like superhuman, almost empathy at play here where he's like, he seems to detect that Hal wants to be alone for a little while. And so he, right. he's, he seamlessly finds a way to right. distract himself so mm -hmm. that Hal can kind of walk, wander off on his own without feeling guilty. The other thing that's weird is that, which it seems like kind of an incandescent thing is that he's talking or he, or he seems to be talking, but these two, he and uh, Millicent, Millicent. USS Millicent yeah. Kent, uh, they're talking, but they are not having a conversation. Right. And right. Neither one is paying any attention to the words yeah. that the other is saying. It's like they're yeah. not, which is kind of that Hal not able to communicate thing, too, that, that mm -hmm. talking but not connecting. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, one thing that I'm interested in with this section um, and interested in discussing, if this is the first and only even remotely romantic experience thus far of Mario in Condensa, do we feel that Mario, is this a romantic experience for Mario, I guess? Or no, is ro- no, Mario, no, no, no. We classify Mario as aromantic or asexual, even. I, I, I think I would believe that. Uh, yeah. Not know, not knowing much about him yet. I mean, I think that this is this is my biggest beef with this chapter. Is I think that there are like editorial and narrative choices here that reflect poorly on the author. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I don't mind having. Yeah. Is it the author or is it the narrator? Uh, well, that's a very good one because I think talking specifically about the USS Milson Kent's father. Or... Well, no, no, I okay. have I have a whole litany of things, but okay. The the reason I say reflect poorly on the author is that the narration changes in the book, like the yeah. the, the descriptive narration. It remains in third person throughout, but usually it does seem to be based from the perspective of one of the characters in the scene. So like a lot of the stuff with Murat and Steeply, you even hear the like kind of stilted language of an English as a second language speaker in mm-hmm. some of those descriptive passages. Um, here it seems to be more, it seems to be told from Mario's perspective. So I think that's the narrator in I this disagree. Case. It Who? seems to me like it's more from Hal's perspective. Okay. I mean, it's not following him, but if I were pressed to say who is the who is the voice overhead telling me the story, I would say Hal so, because Mario's not going to title his chapter that. Well, that's mm-hmm. my point. So you think that Hal would consider this a romantic experience that Mario had? I think he would be saying it ironically. Or like in that weird detached way that Hal mm. does things. Maybe. Mm. I think I think that we're very, very quick to blame things on David Foster Wallace. And I don't think that that's wrong. And I don't think that it's something that... I am by no means saying that he's a genius and we shouldn't question anything that he says, but I do think that we need to be more critical about there being a distinction between narrator and author. Yes. And not everything mm. is perhaps traceable to the author's biography yeah. or yeah. traceable to his experiences. That's a very this good point. This is a work of fiction. Yeah, for sure. Um I think which that, is why I ask that point, yes. perhaps pointed well, okay, question. Okay, of you. that's fair. <laughs> I, but but let's talk about this as as a work of fiction in whole, then, and not just this scene taken out of context from the rest of the book. There's some stuff that happens in this chapter that, in the context of the larger book, is troubling. This is the first female student at Enfield that we meet, uh, right. and she's described in a way that I can only call clownish. Like, like yeah. de- uh-huh. denigrated as uh, right. physically undesirable and as a disaster in her personal and family life. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, but a spectacular uh, player. A spectacular player, but... She where, doesn't love the game. She doesn't... No. And, and yeah. regardless, like, were she a male character in this book, were she one of Hal's friends, it would be enough for her to be a spectacular player. Right. You know, like... Right. 
Like we, I'd say that that tracks to the larger sexism that I'm picking up on throughout the entire novel. Right. And this mm. being well, like, one like of very few female other, characters we've right. met. Right. Yeah. Let alone female characters that we can sympathize with. Right. It's like the right. female characters are almost caricatures mm-hmm. so far. Mm-hmm. Which... Even if it's kind of a sympathetic, like who is the poor, abused girl oh i can't 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 remember her her name Uh, oh kate gomper not kate gomper i I was gonna say with the exception of kate gomper who does seem to be more dimensional yeah um wardine wardine yeah wardine yeah Ah, yeah. it's not that you don't feel compassion for them both of those characters have had difficult things happen to them but -hmm. they're presented in such a denigrating way really both Mm -hmm. of them even in spite of the fact that they've both been through a lot. Yeah. They're not getting any slack from in the in the narrative. They're Right. They're not particularly likable. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. if you feel sorry for their situation. You, right. They're not particularly likable. Well so this is complicated because first of all, this chapter describes this as a remotely romantic experience. Uh, as opposed to a sexual assault, which it is. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, but also on top of that, the the way that Millicent Kent is depicted is like like a sexual ogre or something like like. Yeah, she right. she well, ha- like the- she has these urges that make her into a monster that well, seems like to a- be reflected by her physical size and the the way uh-huh. the way she styles her hair. Um, the USS Millicent Kent sounds like a battleship, for right, sure. That's, right, that's, yeah. right. That's, that's the whole. That's, that's yeah, the that's yeah. joke. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's this anecdote about her father who cross dresses by wearing his daughter's clothing, mm-hmm. which is this whole other layer of ickiness. That yes, it is. Like the cross dressing is one thing, but the dressing in your kids' clothing. I don't know. It's really that is concerning. It, it's it's, it's yeah. really concerning, and it, it, it feels to me like wh- whether the narrator is like Hal, who is a straight cis man, or or whether this narration is David Foster Wallace or whoever is whoever is the author of this section. Uh, it seems to me like the kind of scenario somebody would imagine if they didn't know a cross dresser in real life. I don't you know. know yeah. or it, they, didn't, it didn't even. To me, it didn't come across as a cross-dressing issue. It was there was something almost incestuous about it. You know, yeah. it's one thing to don your well, don but, the, I, but that's, that's what I mean. A, like, like and it's, dance it's about shoving yourself into your child's clothing. It's it's an but, icky image. But there's there's an author who made up that image. This is not real life. Somebody came up with that image, and it right. reminds me of in the '90s. There was this moral panic about like gay elementary school teachers, and mm-hmm. and and there was this whole big push from the religious right to try and imply that being gay was the same as being a pedophile. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think the same thing is happening here by implying that being a cross dresser is the same as having incestuous urges for your young children. Right. Yeah. Well, do you think it's a, a size thing? Like another another physical size 
ha ha. There's definitely thing. some some like, gross like yeah. size shaming mm-hmm. yeah. stuff so going on here. That. I guess I don't want to yuck anybody's yum, <laughs> but. Yeah, and well, I mean, the thing is... But at the same time, I don't know quite how to parse this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think the whole part with her father kind of just um, stinks of kink-shaming. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, it's kink-shamey, it's kind of transphobic, it's got all sorts of issues to it. Mm Mm-hmm. And why, I just don't understand why that's even there. It doesn't add anything to the narrative. It's, aside yeah. from it's to imply it's that Millicent is deviant in some way. Well, that's, I think that's, yeah. that's all it's for. Is it's to illustrate the ways in which Millicent is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Which I think is perhaps not fair. No, absolutely not. No, it's not. No, she's... She's playing tennis because she wanted to get ri- away from her father, right? That was and the right. that, on its her face, is out. like, that's an interesting narrative. If yeah. she were a more sympathetic character, and if this story were told in a way that was less transphobic, like, that's, I, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. But the, the way it's framed here and the way it's presented is, um, I don't know, it's, it's presented as, like, slapstick comedy. I, I mean, Vinny, to, to go back to what yeah. you were saying about, like, we're, yeah, we're living in sort of sort of a, a, a brutal '90s slapstick world where yeah. where there's not a lot of of care or empathy. Yep. Like that, that's what this narration is doing. Yeah, we could talk about this um, in terms of how to compare steeply and mm-hmm. his uh, cross dressing, his um, trans identity with Millicent's father's. You know, on the continuum of. Uh, friends-based trans humor to Twin Peaks-based trans understanding that steeply, to me, is a lot more sympathetic in a way in his yeah. trans identity. Um, well, isn't he also closer. doing it for a job and it's ostensibly yeah. a, a disguise yeah. that he's gotten comfortable I, in? It, Vinny, it's great that you mentioned Twin Peaks because I was thinking of that too in relation to Steeply. We've watched Twin Peaks. Vinny, you've watched Twin Peaks. Mom, I mm-hmm. don't know if you have or not or if you remember, have, but there's I there's a story arc. I think it's in the first. It. I, no, I it's in the I second season some. where David Duchovny comes in and plays. Oh, it, what is her name? Right. Um, oh, oh, I just looked it up today. I just um, had it in my head. And it, yeah. it fell right out as I was saying the sentence. But he plays um, an FBI agent who who started out undercover dressed as a woman and realized that she felt more comfortable as a woman. Um, and so started going by that that name and that identity in real life. And and she she mentions this to Dale Cooper in an episode like she pops back up a few episodes later and he's like, oh, you're still you're still you're not a man. And she's like. Yes, I, I feel more comfortable. This is my name now. And Cooper says, oh, great. And it's it's absolutely a non-issue from then on. It's just like, that's who she is. And, right. Um, and that was, that, that that dates from before this book. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Denise Bryson. Denise, yes, that's right. Yeah. I knew it was a D. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I could only think of Diane, though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah and that's... 90s trans representation done right. Exactly, yeah. And then on the flip side is 90s trans representation done wrong, which is in Friends, where um, I believe it is Chandler's father 
uh, who is a trans woman. And mm. it's all just all like a uh, jokey, all, oh, gross, oh, aren't you a man, and things oh, like that. that's awful. Yeah. And so to me, with uh, Millicent's fathers, I get a lot m- more feeling of the friends representation than the Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, yeah, kind of feeding into this idea that we're in this apocalypse or this dystopia based around 90s humor uh, mm-hmm. Which is lacking in empathy, lacking in understanding. I am, and you know, like I said before, it doesn't really care who it hurts, so long as it thinks it's making a joke. See, yeah. I, I didn't get. It wasn't the cross dressing so much that struck me. It was much more. I, I think I more saw that whole piece as sort of back to to Vinny's slapsticky style, kind of a slapstick attempt to tell us that Millicent Kent was a little girl who was being sexually abused by her father. Which is and equally icky. That the dressing was just a the, way, a euphemistic way of talking about the I, sexual I, abuse. I, that I mean, I, I, think it, I think it can be both of those things and both be gross. I think that the equation of the two things is gross. That, that, yes. that cross-dressing being yeah. equated with pedophilia and incest is gross. And see, I that didn't, pedophilia and incest on its own is gross. And the, the I, way that that cross-dressing is portrayed is also I gross. I didn't like, read it that like I, intersectionally, all of those things are gross in their own ways, and then you have like this hat trick of grossness <laughs> in the way that they're presented. I can yeah. see what your I can see what your point is, but it it wasn't. I didn't feel upset with his cross dressing. Yeah. I felt upset with the message that I was getting that he was doing terrible things to his daughter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's. And I didn't and, see them as I didn't really even see them as connected, except it was a a way to say that bad, terrible things were happening without having to go into the bad and terrible things that mm. had happened. Yeah. Mm. I thought it was sort I, of a, a pair of, I don't know, but I can see what yeah. you mean about that. I do think that that's there connection. though. Yeah. Um, because of the, the implication of, Oh, this happened to uh, her sister's her sister right. outfit her. too. And it's like, yeah. I definitely read it as trying to get away from abuse yeah. By mm. desperately needing to go to a boarding school specifically. Right. A um, boarding school that focused on a sport that you don't like. Yeah. I mean, yeah. She, but then it seems like, yes, getting away from abuse, but then the cross dressing becomes a joke part of yeah. that equation. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's icky. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Millicent Kent. <laughs> yeah. exactly. The whole victim becomes aggressor cycle. Yeah. That's uh, so heartbreaking. And poor Mario. Yeah. yeah. Mario is Mario comes across in this in this chapter as so innocent and so naive. It seems like it never occurs to him that anything has gone on. <laughs> it shouldn't right. even. He's just wondering where's the tripod and where's, you know, right? Where's and, the tripod and what kind of tripod tri- is it? Yeah, and, what kind of tripod is it? Is it this kind or that kind? Did you see yeah. what kind it is? And I was also yeah. wondering what a tripod would be doing 
in the wilderness unattended, unattached to it a is human. It's really mysterious. Is someone spying? Yeah, because at first it seems like maybe that's something that Millicent made up to lure Mario right. into the woods. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that was something somebody could make up, though. That's true. That seems like... <laughs> it seems so if she weird. Wanted, except if she wanted to entice Mario off into the bushes, a yeah, tripod he does, would definitely He's very do interested it, cause in he's, tripods. Because he, mm-hmm. you know, he films tennis matches sometimes, and, and so he uses a tripod. Obviously, he knows a lot about tripods. But the weird thing is that part of the chapter... Uh, ends by saying that they stumble across it, right? In the middle mm-hmm. of what wasn't such a very tall or thick thicket at all. So it's just like in a clearing in the woods. It's a clearing. It's, it's yeah. surveillance. It's, it's, yeah. it's a... Something weird is going well, on. Well, but it's a it's specifically a cinema Cinematic. tripod. Yeah. Which so, implies, like, I, I would think a surveillance tripod would be, a, I mean, a surveillance right. tripod is a different thing. And right. I would suspect right. that Mario would know the difference between, a, right. like, a, <laughs> you know, a surveying tripod or something versus, or a photography tripod versus a cinema tripod. Is there a connection to James O? Maybe James O is still skulking around <laughs> campus and making movies in his afterlife or something. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for you to get to the afterlife part before I reminded you. You know he's dead, right? <laughs> Just <laughs> I mean, check in. as far as we know, he's dead. That's true. There's right. nothing to say that he didn't fake his death. Mm-hmm. Or when did he die? He uh, took his own life in the year of the trial-sized dove bar. Oh, okay. Which is... Which is two years prior to the year of the Depend Adult oh, Undergarment. So it was not recent. No. Yeah. So it's not a leftover from his... Well, it I mean, it's possible. I mean, it could be. Two years. Yeah. Except, Except it's... It, it's, it's described not as in being a deep thicket. It's somewhere that someone would have come across. That's true. It. Yeah. Yeah. Waffle tipped husky. Someone was filming something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that. Yeah. That seems like the only explanation. Yeah, and that's kind of what I took from it is that yeah somebody was filming something mm-hmm. there. And you know there was a lot of other rustling in the bushes. That's true. That can't have there's all a, been Hal. A, Mario even says that Hal doesn't make a lot of noise inside yeah. or out. And so the yeah. rustling probably came from somewhere else. So there's something mysterious going on at Enfield. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, one other detail that we got in this chapter right at the beginning, it mentions an Empire Waste Displacement Vehicle whiz, uh, yeah, yeah. whistling past yes, overhead. Yes. Yes, so it's fact, like a, oh. yeah. a garbage airplane or something. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered about that too. And that's, and I mean, that's all it says they, about it. It seems so mundane to Mario. Like, this is probably right. something that happens all the time. Like, the, the company name too, the Empire Empire Waste Displacement. Yeah. Displacement Vehicle. Right. <laughs> so, it's a, the vehicle itself is a displacement vehicle mm-hmm. operated by Empire Waste Displacement. When you started saying Empire Waste, I'm like, there's a no. there's a dress in a here. Dress. Mm. Is that a that's dress. a thing? Yeah, yeah isn't it? It's a high waisted. Uh, is that a is that an intentional pun? I what I would, don't know. What would it mean? Empire waist. <laughs> it's got to be a pun. That can't be accidental, can it? It seems unlikely. <laughs> yeah. So where do they dump the waste? Does it all go in, flung into Canada or into the Great Concavity or where does it go? 
Isn't it? Doesn't that go into the great concavity? That's my assumption. In there, because we we know that the great concavity is like toxic, and that the U.S. gave it back to Canada to make it their problem, and and then built these big walls and fans around the. I I don't know. That would seem to be very unethical to dump your garbage into another country if it does indeed belong to Canada now. We do that all the time. Mm. I thought they I thought Canada didn't accept it. Oh, so it's unclear. It's like Yeah, we talked about this. It's like the opposite of a disputed territory. Uh, Nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. (laughs) So do we want to move on to back to Steeply and Marat? Yeah. Sure. They're still out here. Mm -hmm. And it's cold. It's getting cold, yeah. And they're talking about the AFR chose Boston as its operations center. And the Office of Unspecified Services thinks that's because that's where the entertainment came from originally. Right. Mm -hmm. And they talk about the anti-entertainment remedy yes. like and the yeah. antidote yeah. for the, the entertainment so so there's rumors that the filmmaker who made the entertainment also made an antidote to it um mm-hmm. but marat says that they don't have any evidence that it's real and that they think it's the craziness of rumors is all that that is that's what he says but you can't believe anything he, he says. could yeah. He, you can't believe a word he says. That's the problem of these scenes is that they could be telling the whole truth to each other or they could be telling an absolute fabrication or anywhere in between. So, right. <laughs> well, one of them could be lying and yeah. the other one telling this the is, truth. Yeah. This is also versa. where there was, an, there was an end note about the FLQ. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, the, I really like that. That's really hilarious. The Quebec Liberation <laughs> Front, a younger and rowdier and less implacably businesslike cell than the AFR. Mm-hmm. That uses Hawaiian music like they've adopted Hawaiian culture. As yeah, that there's like this because... solidarity with Hawaii as, as another colonized right. place. I find that kind of heartwarming. That mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess I, I it makes me wonder what Hawaii thinks of the FLQ. Historically, Hawaii has had the opposite problem from Quebec in this book, that uh, Quebec has this massive toxic waste dump that America doesn't want now. And uh, well, couldn't you say that tourism toxic- is a toxic waste dump? Well, well that's what I mean, is Hawaii. Hawaii was this like paradise that America just had to get its grubby little paws on. Yeah, the toxic waste dump in Hawaii is all of us. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone is interested in the history of Americans' colonization of Hawaii, um, I highly recommend the book Unfamiliar Fishes by Sarah mm. Vowell. Um, it's it's a shorter one of her books, and I really like her writing. And that particular book is really nicely researched, and um, it takes great pains to look at the story from the perspective of Hawaiians and the Hawaiian royal families that, that were around when uh-huh. America kind of started walking all over their islands. Good book. Sarah Depressing Babel, story. Sarah yeah. Vowell, yeah. Vowell. Who, have, have you read any of her other books? I don't, I don't Assassination so. Vacation. I, yeah, I think you, actually both of you, I think would really like them. I don't normally get into mm. history nonfiction, but her writing is exceptional. So she wrote Assassination Vacation that's about taking this road trip to the sites of all the presidential assassinations and, and writing about the, the people behind them. Um, so what's her last name? 
Vowel, V O W E L L. She's contributed oh, like a lot vowel. to a, like to uh, this American Life. Yeah. Oh, okay. mm. Um, and she's a she's a voice in um, the Incredibles. In the Incredibles, she's by the, Pixar. Yeah, and then she also wrote oh. the other one that I really like from her is uh, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. That's about <laughs> General Lafayette returning to the U.S. shortly after the Revolutionary War, huh. uh, and, mm. and kind of the uh, the political pressures at play during that period. Um, Marat's wife is dying of a heart disease that's caused by pollution in the concavity or seems right. to be caused by right. that. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was um, mostly unknown before, before. Yes. Yeah. And it has now become very common. Right. So climate disaster or, or ecological disaster. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. This reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of like environmental racism. It's a pretty well documented fact now that the systemic placement of toxic waste and manufacturing facilities away from right. majority white communities has resulted right. in much higher rates of cancer and chronic right. illness among people of color nationwide. Right. Right. Um, and so it, it's just the same thing here, here being done build, to the Quebecois. You always build those those kinds of places in spots where people are powerless to object. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I don't have anything but, else to say but, about that but, except but that. What about the, what about the, the antidote for the entertainment? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk more about that. It seems to me, I'm skeptical. It's, I, I think that I agree with, with the AFR or, or with Marat that it seems like wishful thinking. Yeah. How could there be another entertainment or another film that could combat a film you know it seems like the antidote should be an anti-film which they even they say yeah they do say anti-film but like like, what would they even look like how do do you make an anti-bullet or maybe it explodes your Maybe it maybe it causes your teleputer to explode. Well, except, but even except then, the, you're dead already. The the attaché and all those people were taken out of the house, and they're still out of commission, whatever that means. Yeah, I suppose maybe it's possible, but it seems like that's a pretty big leap for something that nobody has mentioned up to this point. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, it's some kind of dose of common sense. <laughs> Somehow. I would think it would be some sort of film that would just um, break your concentration from the entertainment. Uh, that the entertainment I is... Guess. Yeah. But wouldn't but, that but again, be just as, if not more seductive than the entertainment itself? In or it's, order it's to like, tear it's like your a, eyes But if it's, away if it's like it. a film that forces you to look away from it, maybe? Mm, maybe. Which a lot of experimental film tries to be. <laughs> right? maybe, it has some, maybe it has some weird optical effects or does something to reawaken the part of your brain that has been dying off because of the entertainment. Hmm. Mm. But correct me if I'm wrong, but we're 127 pages into this book. <laughs> and granted, I've read it before. But can you realistically tell me that this book is going to have a happy ending? You know what I picture? I, ha- I picture it having no ending. I just picture it trailing off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How very Samuel Beckett. Mm, yes. 
just everyone wandering wandering off into into whatever it doesn't sound like a very hopeful or pleasant place and time to be alive it yeah. all sounds and i complain a, a lot about humans and human institutions governments myself right now i spend a lot of time complaining either to my own self or to others about it but this this book seems much even more hopeless and sad sort of and dysfunctional than the real world that i live in right now which i think is deeply dysfunctional la- deeply mm-hmm. dysfunctional and many also moments kind of hopeless moments yeah, yeah and also it, kind of know, sad and sad uh and and yet the book manages to portray a place that I, I like when I read this, I have no desire to be living amongst any of these people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I'm mm-hmm. glad I don't have to live with any of them. Mm-hmm. So, the no, I don't picture anything really good happen. I don't picture anything really good coming of it, I guess. Maybe I That's... would hope for my favorite characters that there's some kind of hopeful something but i don't i'm not holding my breath for that yeah Yeah. that's ultimately what informs my thought that there is not an antidote (laughs) it would just be too easy like if there's an antidote and and it could be recovered like this book would not be a thousand pages long i don't think well arguably it could still be a thousand pages long because it's not just talking about the entertainment yeah. If it were true. if it were just following the story of the entertainment, you're right. It's probably a 250 page novel. I mean, tops. to me an antidote would have to involve something that would make people throw out their teleputers. It's not mm-hmm. nece- it's not so much an antidote as a vaccine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to prevent whatever it is that the entertainment does to you, you have to not put it in your TP. You have to not yeah. Pop it in. Maybe that's why I put the book down at one point when I tried reading it before <laughs> that I became that I mm-hmm. became dismayed by the no hope for anything good to come of this sort of feeling that you get when you read it. Mostly though, when I read this book, I get frustrated that the things that I want to know more about they are really slow in being revealed. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I really want to know I want to know more about the incandenses I as agree. a family unit. Yeah. I want to sit at their dinner table and what do the parents think about their strange children and what do the strange children think about their even stranger parents and and I want to know all these things. Mm-hmm. And I have to be satisfied with lines like Oren was able to sleep with his eyes open at the dinner table. Like that Yeah. That, that's my that's my peek into Incandenza family life for this chunk of reading. Yeah. Do people have other thoughts about the Steeply and Marat section? Vinny talking about, uh, like, blackface kind of stuff. For, oh, yeah, yeah. for a year. With, oh, that, that yeah. One of the disguises that Steeply used, one of the personas was a Haitian. He was a Haitian. Yeah, that was also very yeah. uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That also leads me to wonder, do we know about any black characters just the teenagers right the teenagers in the 
Is Don Gately black? I'm not sure. Oh, I never would have I th- thought. I, feel, I was trying sure to pay either. attention to that, and I feel like he's written in a pretty racially ambiguous way. Yeah. And I think that, that maybe um, that's the case for a number of characters. Although I get the impression that Enfield is a very white that institution. That is the impression that right. I get, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's the impression I get too. But in general, I think the only person who we really know their racial background is the incandensers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's a couple of students who are... Isn't there like, a Turkish the, student? Or Armenian or something. Yeah. And there's a... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Murad actually says, so, yeah. and also, why did they never send you into the field as yourself? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is to say, right? in appearance. Right. Why do, why do you have to look different? <laughs> yeah, or like, why did they need like, steeply yeah. to dress up as a Haitian instead or of just having... Or a woman. Instead of just having a Haitian cop or a woman cop right. take these assignments. Right. That's outrageous. <laughs> right. Yeah. And are they ever going to get off the ledge? I hope not. <laughs> I just live be for this. For a thousand <laughs> this pages. I don't see it's how excellent. it's possible. How would it be possible? I wonder if Marat thinks that he is not going to get off that ledge alive. Maybe. Mm. I I propose that, that the way he that he gun? gets off the ledge is in death. Yes. What did uh I have one other question on page one twenty six when mm-hmm. they're talking about uh Marat's wife was dying slowly of the cardiac condition and then he said he thought he thought colon and then in italics die twice. What's that referencing? Is, so I, I assume the he there is Marat? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't know exactly, except that it, well, no, it seems to... Well, no, it's not to, clear. Maybe it's not clear. It seems more it like a thought about, that Marat would have than one that Steeply would have. It feels right. like it's more in line with the like fatalism of the, the Quebecois separatists. But yeah, but what does the twice refer to there? <laughs> so before you explained that it was a a heart thing, I thought that it was a lung thing, even though I read the footnote. It obviously <laughs> just went in one eye and out the other. Um, I thought that it was a mm. lung thing and that it was like the crumpling up and dying of a single lung and then the other one Mm. and it feeling like dying Mm. twice but maybe that's just a an artistic image that i have in my brain that i will now write about myself (laughs) or like does is is the first death the death of quebec and the second death the death of his wife or are we sure that it's marat thinking about it because the paragraph starts talking about steeply using his That's true. device, and mm. uh, he's waiting for Marat to elaborate more fully. And they're looking at—he's looking at the lights of Tucson, and it mentions Marat's wife, but it right. says Marat's wife, not not my his, his wa- wife, yeah. his or it's right. like steeply is thinking, "Oh, Marat's wife is dying slowly." die twice but then what does that mean Mm. in that context either yeah 
Yeah. What would that mean to steeply? It also really and doesn't seem like... why is it in like, italics? Things the, aren't in italics in this book, are they? Not why often. In, no. I, I don't know. I still think it's got to be Marat thinking that. Just because the 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 abstraction and the poetry of that thought just seems like something that wouldn't come through Steeply's mind. Yeah. Hmm. I think that that level of poeticness perhaps comes from English being his second language. Mm. This is wild and totally out there, but I'm listening to a bunch of audiobooks that have ghosts in them and when a ghost is exorcised, it's their second death. And I know that mm. you kind of think about humans, and when a human dies, the the first death is when they leave the physical plane, but their second death is once you forget about them, mm-hmm. or the people who are left behind forget mm. about them. Hmm. But I don't know that I think that that fits here, necessarily. And I don't like that it's italicized. <laughs> and comes after a comes after yeah. a colon. And yeah. Why? Why the colon? <laughs> why? Why that sentence bothers me. He thought <laughs> col- colon die twice. Maybe he's gonna roll his his wheelchair off the ledge and shoot himself on the way down. <laughs> well, no, no, I, I think I think Ooh. that you're redundant. I think that that you are. We have different concepts of who the AFR are. I don't think that they're suicidal. No, but I'm no, saying but... Marat. Maybe who knows? Maybe okay, that's fair. I just worry and about him being despairing. on the ledge. I... He got there himself, so yeah, he's got to have how? a way to leave. Yeah, but going down know. is going down he's, is easier than going up. I think that I just, a turncoat could potentially be despairing, or that okay, that's close yeah, to suicidal, depending on how desperate he's feeling and where he's at in his brain. So. I don't think that it would be out of character for Marat to wish to cut ties, but I don't know. I he's think there'd still, have to be something. He seems still motivated by his uh, care for his wife. But there would so have, if know. there were some motivation, if there were some reason that I don't know, that I don't understand about why it would be great if he dove off the ledge. <laughs> Uh, I mean, also, if there was why not that good that would happen from it? Then but he what might. if he has uh, like mm. glider wings attached to his <laughs> yeah. wheelchair, or like yeah. a little, like a, a propeller oh. hat? Yeah, you yeah. know those little propeller hats? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I worry about him out there on the ledge. I'm not even sure. I mean, I, th- there are characters that I'm sure. far more worried about than Marat. Marat can take care of himself. He does seem like he can take care of himself. I'm not sure that even Steeply can get off the ledge. Oh, no. I worry more about Steeply. Oh, oh yeah. I'm not Considering sure that how either he got one there. of them can get mm-hmm. up, up and over and off the ledge. Steeply definitely <laughs> climbed up there without a flashlight, and he's going to be stuck there in the dark. Oh, my God. Yeah. Does anyone have anything to tell the world or any plugs? Uh, a momentous occasion this week for me was that for the first time 
in the last six weeks uh, when I did my grocery store order, I actually received toilet paper. Hooray! Hooray! Oh, the first time. nice. I am a officially a master and That's I'm doing so pretty well on my reading goal. <laughs> nice. Okay. Check out Vinny's paintings on Instagram at CardboardVV. Um, my website is agingrick.com. Brianna's website is briannacratz.com. Norma doesn't have a it. website. Norma I'm doesn't old. have a website. Um, uh, yeah. There's, uh, <laughs> it, I, it's possible. I, I don't know if anyone's listening to this or not. It's possible that someone is listening to this. Oh, Mary um, Shire listened to some. Oh, hi, Mary. Um, so, so we actually have through our podcast host a way that listeners can uh follow a link and leave us a voice message Ooh, uh, that so, would be so fun you know check the, check the show notes there's a there's a clickable link in there that takes you to the anchor website where you can record comments and we'll we'll uh uh excitedly listen to and address anything we receive. No kidding. Just, just some proof that the outside yes. world exists would be really nice right about now. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Next week we'll be talking about pages 127 to 151. Our music is by David Nichols. You can listen to his podcast The Land of Random on Spotify. And remember, in this time of uncertainty, don't think, just see. Don't know, just flow. Goodbye. this was a very good episode like in terms of listenability so this is yeah, one i'll point good. people to yeah yeah tell them to start with episode five. Oh, okay. start, start with five and honestly i have to say the book the book doesn't seem that bad this time through so it must be oh, yeah. because reading it with others <laughs> no good <laughs>